says chapter 17, Jesus spoke these words and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may also glorify you as you have given him authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life that they may know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And God, we just ask now in this moment that your Holy Spirit, as always, would just help us as we continue in this part of our worship by submitting our hearts and souls and minds to what the Word of God, your Spirit-inspired Scripture, would want to speak to each one of us. Lord, may we hear your voice and every intent behind the reason you recorded this portion of your scripture for us. Prepare us accordingly in a way only you can by your spirit and speak to each one of us personally, we pray now. Bless your word, we ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. You know, some people like to keep what we might refer to as a prayer journal where maybe you would write down uh, who or or what you're praying about and kind of keep a a record of what you're praying for. Perhaps some people, even a little more specific, actually write out their actual prayer to God in written form and they write that out as they're seeking to pray. Well, here in John 17, the Spirit of God does that really with Jesus' prayer in these last hours of the life of Jesus right before he will suffer and die upon the cross. We have a written record here of the actual content and conversation that took place between the Son of God, Jesus our Lord, as he living in the body of flesh as a man communicated with his Father who was in heaven. So we sort of get, if you would, uh, an allowance by God, sort of the holy privilege to peek into an entry of Jesus' prayer journal. Uh, Now, I do that once in a while with my wife to kind of see how I'm doing, see how many times I show up in there and kind of what she's praying about. It kind of gives me a pulse. Uh, I openly confess that. I peek in there once in a while to kind of just see how I'm doing, what I need to repent of and so forth. And, and, And here Jesus prays and the Spirit of God graciously records for us one of the many prayers that Jesus prayed during his time uh, as living as a man on this earth. And we kind of get to peek now inside of the prayer journal of Jesus and see our Lord praying. Now in Scripture, Jesus' life as a man was characterized by often spending time in prayers. You read through the Gospels, you see that Jesus at times would get up a long while before daylight. He would go off to a solitary place or he would spend time in prayer before he selected his disciples. He spent the entire night in prayer. So he prayed privately. We also see Jesus praying publicly, out loud that is, together with others who were with him. And this is one of those times we read here where the disciples actually had a chance to hear Jesus as a man praying out loud in front of them. And because of that, we now get the privilege on one of those occasions, this one given to us, to see and to learn how Jesus prayed. What mattered to Jesus when he prayed? Who and what did he find important when he prayed to pray about? And as we survey this sort of sacred communication between the Son and the Father, I pray the Spirit of God helps us learn the things that he would have us to. So look with me in verse 1 as we work through this together. It tells us beginning in chapter 17 that Jesus spoke these words, notice, and lifted his eyes to heaven and said. Now take note right away that the times of prayer that Jesus had with the Father were not restricted to one particular specific bodily posture. Oftentimes when we think about praying or we say, let's bow our heads and pray, our, our concept of prayer, typically bodily posture, we picture, okay, that's when you bow your head, 
That's when you close your eyes, maybe even fold your hands. Certainly that's a lot of times how we teach kids to pray, but probably a lot of that has to do with the sensory stimulation. You'll close your eyes so you're not distracted. Bow your heads and fold your hands so you're not hitting your brother or doing something. You show, and, and because of that, we kind of have this concept in our mind that that customarily is the way to pray. You bow your head, you close your eyes, you fold your hands. Well, that's great, but when you're praying in your car, I certainly would not recommend that. There are times when I'm talking to somebody on the phone that maybe I'm driving, and, and, I, and I, I, of course, you're not supposed to do that, are you? Boy, pray for me. I just realized this is New Jersey. <laughs> It's been five years. Uh, in PA, you could do that. It wasn't against the law. But I you know, said to people, if they're driving, because they do the same thing, obviously, you're a bunch of sinners with me. But I know I say to them, hey, look, don't close your eyes. I jokingly say, I'm going to pray for you, but don't close your eyes. You're driving right now in traffic. But we don't have to pray always in that manner. In fact, look at Jesus here. It says, as he prayed, he lifted his eyes up to heaven. So he looked up, eyes open, and he prayed out loud. Customarily, many times the Jews would even pray with their hands raised. What I want you to take note of is prayer is not about the position of our body per se. It's about the posture and the condition and position that our heart is in. We see in the Bible people pray on their knees. We see people pray, laying prostrate before the Lord, walking and praying, eyes open, talking out loud. Again, th this is not something that we should ever hyperemphasize the position that we're in. It's the condition of our heart that God's really concerned about. And we see that even in Jesus here, eyes open, talking out loud, looking up to heaven. And notice what he begins to pray now as we work through this together he says first of all father the hour has come now up to this point all throughout the gospel of john we've seen a few times jesus kept saying my hour has not yet come he kept re-emphasizing that many times when people were trying to persuade him he'd say my hour has not yet come we know that that reference to his hour is a reference to the main purpose for which he came that hour which we're about to see in the chapters ahead where jesus would suffer and die on the cross for the sins of the world so that you and i could be saved and here jesus now knowing that this is the very night this is the last hours of his life this appointed hour set from all of eternity that jesus has been waiting for this hour has now come to pass where he's going to suffer and be crucified and bear the wrath of god for the sins of every one of us on this earth that that time is now at hand he's about to face it and endure it. and so therefore he says father the hour has now come now how challenging it must have been to be jesus and to know that that hour in his humanity was now about to come all the suffering and the loneliness and the betrayal and the pain that he would go through but how wise jesus as a man indicates that knowing he's going into a very hard hour the first thing he resorts to and the thing he continues to do through it is to pray we're going to see even in the garden of gethsemane when he sweats great drops of blood as he's under such stress as he prays his way through the painful difficult process he prays his way through that squeezing, that pressure, that hard hour, a great example for you and I as well. And notice what his hour mattered the most to him. Verse 1 goes on to say that Jesus said, Father, glorify your son that your son may also glorify you. So Jesus' prayer was that his sacrificial obedience to the will of God by doing what he was about to do would bring glory, first of all, to the Son of God, so that God Himself, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, would receive glory, that the glory of God would come to pass. That people's attention, as their hearts were turned to Jesus, <clears throat> and what Jesus would do, that His act of obedience and submission to the will of God would cause God to be glorified. This was what mattered to the Lord. His desire was that His obedience to the will of God would bring glory to God. And let me say, I think as the Spirit of Jesus, who's risen from the dead, and the Bible says now dwells in you and I, should prompt us to pray in the same manner. Our same manner of prayer might perhaps be stirred by the Spirit of Jesus within us who prayed this way, that we might say, Lord, glorify yourself in my life. Lord, I pray that what's happening in my life would cause God to be glorified and you to be honored. Then Jesus said, verse 2, as you've given him authority 
over all flesh. So he mentions to the father uh, his awareness, how the father has entrusted to him, notice, authority over all of creation to rule, not just over the created order, but particularly over every person on the earth, all flesh. Now that again, that statement of Jesus indicates his divinity Again, And we've seen him many times continue to make inferences to how he was himself God in human flesh. And here he says, you've given me authority, Father, over all flesh. The point is that he's ruler and he is Lord of all, of all people, of everyone who has been created. Now, whether people submit to Jesus' authority now in this life or not, that doesn't change the fact that he's still the Lord of all. That he still is the Lord, he still has authority, whether people submit to his authority or not. And here's the thing, who Jesus is does not change, and one day everybody's going to have to acknowledge Jesus' authority. Even if you don't bow the knee in this life, you can be stubborn and stiff-necked if you choose to. And either you can willingly bow the knee to Jesus now, or you can regretfully bow the knee to Jesus when you step on the other side of eternity and find that you must acknowledge him for who he is anyway. Philippians 2 says, being a man, Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, given the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, listen, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on the earth and those under the earth. So every knee is going to one day bow. Every knee should bow because Jesus is Lord. He has authority over all flesh. And the sooner we acknowledge and represent that by the way we live in relation towards him, the much better for us. So he says, Father, you've given me authority, rulership, lordship. And notice, therefore, what he's able to do with that authority. He says, verse 2 going on, that he should give eternal life to as many as you've given him. And this is, verse 3, eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So as the Lord of life, Jesus himself is the one who gives this quality of everlasting life for eternal life to people. Now, hear me. If you want to go to heaven, if you are here this morning and you want to go to heaven, please pay attention here to the statements that Jesus are making. Because this is clear as a bell. Eternal life entering into heaven is not earned by performing enough religious works. Eternal life, according to Jesus, is a gift that must be received by faith from the Lord Jesus himself. It tells us in Romans chapter 6 that the gift of God is eternal life in or through Jesus Christ, our Lord. According to Jesus, experiencing eternal life, we see in verse 3, according to Jesus, experiencing eternal life is about knowing God in a personal, relational, experiential way through His Son, Jesus Christ. Do you see what Jesus says there in verse 3? This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What Jesus is saying, he is the one sent from heaven as God to represent God to humanity and through having a personal experience with Jesus in a relational way as we embrace him as our savior because we know that we are a sinner and embracing Jesus as the Lord over our life, submitting to his authority, letting him take control and rule over us having a personal relationship with him, that is how we have a relationship with God. Now, because Jesus is sent from heaven as God, as the Son of God coming to us, coming from the eternal dimension, therefore Jesus possesses this eternal quality of life, this quality of spiritual life that is everlasting, of what is experienced for those who are in the realm of heaven. So therefore, it is from Jesus personally that eternal life must be received. It's from Jesus it must be experienced. If we know him and receive him, then he gives to us his eternal life, his quality of eternal life. 
Listen to how John later writes this in 1 John chapter 5. He says there, God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may listen, know that you have eternal life. The Bible teaches knowing whether we have eternal life or the fact that we're going to experience everlasting life in heaven is not a questionable thing. It's not something we have to go, I, I'm not really sure. The Bible says you can know and that either you do have it or you don't. He says that you may know. It's something that we're supposed to know. It's not supposed to be this confusing thing where, where you know, we're kind of trying to figure out. The Bible says this is eternal life. God's given it. It's in his son. And therefore, he who has Jesus and has received from Jesus eternal life, because Jesus is the giver of eternal life, you have eternal life. And if you don't have Jesus, if you have not yet received Jesus into your life, into your life, because he has to be in you so that his eternal life is in you, so that your spirit is made alive, so that you can live forever with him. He says, this is the clarity. If you have Jesus, you've received eternal life. If you don't have Jesus personally, then you do not yet possess eternal life. But notice, for those of us who've received Jesus into our lives personally by faith, asking him to come in, the wonderful thing is you already possess eternal life. One day you're going to experience in its fullness, but you already possess eternal life. That's why you feel like you're in somewhere in a strange and a foreign area because you're connected to another world already. One day you're just going to die and be ushered into that experiential presence of the Lord in eternal life. Well, Jesus says then, verse 4, I've glorified you, Father, on the earth, and I finished the work which you've given me to do. Again, notice Jesus' life as a man had its highest priority, wanting to glorify God. Not do what he pleased or to do what would be what his preference was. He was seeking to honor his father, to do God's will. And how did he do this foremost? Well, verse 4 says that the way he did that is he says, Father, I have finished the work which you have given me to do. What a beautiful statement of how Jesus completed everything that the Father in heaven assigned for him to do. I mean, think about this with me. Jesus did many things during his life and his ministry. We read about it in the Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the Gospels. But also think of this. Think of how many people Jesus had to have in his ministry, how many people Jesus had to have asking him to do things, demanding him to do things, saying to Jesus, Jesus, come here, please, and do this, and, and come over to our town, and come help my mother, and please help my child. And, and Jesus, you need to go over there. I mean, man, you need to go tell those people about the kingdom of God and, and all the ideas and the requests and the demands, the multitude of opportunities that Jesus must have had to do good works, how many different directions he could have been pulled in if, listen, if, he allowed himself to be motivated and directed by people's ideas and the persuasions and pools of everybody's idea and suggestion. I am certain Jesus probably had a pretty big load of responsibility that he lived with in who he was as a man, living as the Lord and the Son of God with the incredible ministry impact. Yet, have you ever noticed when you read the Gospels, Jesus never appears stressed out. He never seems like he's pulled in all different... He never seems like he's overwhelmed. He, he, never, he never even seems like he's in a hurry. You would think of all people, he should look stressed out, overwhelmed, in a hurry. I mean, all that he has to do. Why? Because Jesus didn't do everything that people wanted him to do. Many a times he would graciously respond. There were occasions when he did. But if Jesus did all the works the people asked him to do and everything people thought him to do, that perhaps might have been the case. But Jesus, wisely and intentionally, may not have done what everybody wanted him to do, what everybody thought he should do, what everybody recommended or suggested or asked he should do, but he intentionally, strategically, with wisdom, sought to do what his father assigned for him to do. He said, Father, I finished the work that you have given me to do. He kept on track 
to accomplish what the Father wanted for him. And let me say this morning, that is a really great model for you and I, especially as his followers, to use as we pray through our lives and as we live out our lives because I want to tell you something this morning. There will always be enough time and there will always be sufficient power and grace available for you to finish the work that the Father in heaven gives you to do. That may not be true for every idea that I have for myself and what I think I should do. And certainly it is not going to be true to do everything that everybody suggests you ought to be doing. You ought to do this. You ought to do that. And you should be doing that. And, and come do this and go over there. And, and listen, sometimes that's the Lord. Sometimes that's the will of the Lord. But we also need to realize, and certainly Jesus' life is the greatest example, that our priority is to always say, but Father, is that what you would have me to do? Because there are good works you foreordained. And sometimes perhaps we're so busy fulfilling the work and idea of someone else and we're exhausted and drained and overwhelmed and we're actually neglecting to do maybe the one work the Father wants us to do. And here we are out chasing, well, I should be doing this, I should be doing this, I should be doing this. Yeah, well, well, what about this, which matters much more to the heart of God? And Jesus says here, Father, I finished the work and I want us to remember that's our important reality as well. We can finish the work that the Father himself gives us to do. We have to be discerning about that, however. Verse 5, Jesus then says, And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Notice Jesus on a, kind of makes a homesick cry there. He says, oh, Father, he says, I'm longing for that glory that I once experienced to be restored, that you would glorify me again with that glory I once had with you, notice, before the world was. Jesus indicates here this reminder to all of us as the eternal Son of God, he has been in existence forever. Prior to the time when he came as a man and lived on this earth for the 30 plus years that he did, he's the eternally existent Son of God. And for all of eternity, look, even before the world existed and was created, Jesus was sitting on the throne of God as the Son of God, receiving worship from the angels and, and there in the presence of all of his glory as King of Kings on the throne. But yet he left that to condescend and to come as a humble man and to live in this fallen sinful world for 30 plus years. It's understandable, would it not be, why he'd be so homesick? Wanting to have that restored experience where he's back in the glory of the presence of the Father once again and he's longing for it here, knowing it's about to come to pass, his heart's yearning for it. Now, verses 1 through 5, we see Jesus pray for himself. As we come to verse 6 through 19, Jesus now turns and he starts to pray for the disciples. And let's look what he prayed for those disciples, the 11 that were still with him. He says, verse 6, I've manifested your name to the men who you've given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have kept your word. And now they have known all things which you've given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you've given me. And they've received them and have surely known that I came forth from you and have believed that you sent me. So Jesus here says in verse 6, Father, I've manifested your name. That is the nature of God. He revealed God to those who became his disciples. And he reveals in this section, verse 6 to 8 here, how he and the Father worked in cooperation, in union together, as he's talked about many times before, how everything that Jesus had his words that he spoke, his followers. He says repeated times, Father, you gave these things to me. You gave me the words to give to them and you have given me these disciples to be my followers. Jesus describes repeated times, we'll see it as we go on in the prayer, these statements of how the Father had chosen his disciples and had given the disciples to Jesus to be his followers. And that's the reason why they ultimately chose to follow him. But here's what I want you to take note of. Think of this. How wonderful must that have felt to hear as Jesus was saying, Father, you gave them to me. And what Jesus is indicating as well is, is he saw his followers, the disciples, 
as a special gift from the Father. He actually saw them as a gift from his Father, a love gift. He wasn't annoyed by his disciples and all their shortcomings. He appreciated them and said, Father, thank you. What a gift you've given these followers to me. And he valued them. And notice how they became his followers. He references here in verse 8 how they had received the words that Jesus gave to them. And he says in verse 6, Father, these are those who have not only received your words, but they've kept your word. So through hearing and receiving and responding to the word of God, this is how they became followers of Jesus. Because they responded to what they received from him and therefore, he says, that's how they've come to surely know that I'm from you. And therefore, verse 8, they've believed now that you sent me. Notice, it's through the word of God that the truth of God is revealed to us. And we then have the understanding of who Jesus is and are able to respond to him whether we would choose to become his followers or not. Jesus goes on, verse 9, to say, and I pray for them. I do not pray, he says, for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Now, don't misunderstand. Jesus is not unconcerned about the world. As he says, I'm not praying for the world here. Uh, Jesus loves the world. He came to reach the world, to save the world. But no doubt what Jesus is indicating in the midst of his prayers, he's uniquely concerned for the welfare of his followers. He loves the world. He loves the unconverted and those who aren't yet saved. He wants to see them become his followers. But for those who've bravely chosen to forsake the world system and to become his followers, Jesus is greatly concerned for those people's welfare and that they would be victorious and that they would live fruitful lives and, and live for the glory of God. And he saw his disciples and followers as a stewardship from the Father. And so therefore he zeroes in his prayer and his intercession, particularly as he does to this day still, Romans 8 and Hebrews 7 says, making intercession for us, for his disciples, for followers. And so here he's praying that the disciples would live victoriously and experience God's best and fruitful lives. He says, verse 10, and all mine are yours and yours are mine. And then he says of his disciples, and I am glorified in them. So again, notice the unity between the father and the son. He says, what's mine is yours and yours is mine. And he sees that same unity now with the disciples who were in relationship with him. And therefore, that's why Jesus is greatly interested that they would represent him well. He says, I'm glorified now in them. They represent me. So it mattered to Jesus that they would represent him properly and not dishonor him. Verse 11, he says, now I'm no longer in the world, but these are in the world. I come to you, Holy Father. Keep through your name those whom you've given me that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them in the world, he says, I kept them in your name. Those who you've given me, I have kept. And none of them is lost except the son of perdition. Of course, a reference to Judas Iscariot. He, Jesus said that the scripture might be fulfilled. So while Jesus was present, living with his disciples, ministering together with them, he was there, as we've talked about before, to help them with any and all challenges. Whatever came up, whatever assistance they needed, he was able to provide it for them. But he's now about to return back to heaven to go be with the presence of the Father again. And therefore, he's no longer going to be in the world. But guess what? The disciples had to keep living in the world. They had a time to still fulfill the rest of their lives. And they would be continually, therefore, subject to the world's temptation and its pressures and its influences and the weakness of their own human flesh. So Jesus is now concerned and he begins to ask, particularly that the Father would assist them as he knows he's now returning back to the Father in heaven. And he particularly prays for two things here we can take note of. The first thing he asked the Father to do for the disciples is that he would preserve them while living in the midst of of the sinful and fallen world they were still in. He says in verse 11, Father, keep them, he says. 
Keep them through your name who you've given to me. While living in this world with its temptations and influences and pressures, Jesus did not want to see his disciples give in to the pressures of the world. He didn't want to see them enter into sin and submit to temptation or become like the rest of the world. He wanted them to live set apart from the world, in the world, but not of the world. And he wanted to see them be able to walk in victory so they would be free from the guilt and regrets that come when we fall into temptation as disciples. He wanted to see them find fulfillment in the things of God, not the empty ways of the world. So he's saying, Father, preserve them, keep them. They're going to be continuously bombarded. He says, when I was with them, he says, verse 12, I kept them. But Father, I'm not going to be here anymore. I'm not going to be here to guide them and protect them and shepherd them firsthand as I got the privilege to do these last three years. And so his heart is concerned that his disciples would walk in victory. And Jesus, it shows here, understands the pressure of the system of the world and how it's difficult to live as a Christian in this world with the forces of the enticement to sin and So he's asking the father to supernaturally preserve them. Father, keep them stable, keep them safe. And Jesus here understands, which gives me encouragement as well, that his disciples need the power of God to keep us from the pressures of this world, from the things that we're subject to, to keep us from stumbling as we walk out our Christian life in this world. We can't do this on our own. But by the grace of God, there go I. We need the keeping power of God to keep us from stumbling as we live in this world. And how awesome Jesus was praying, Father, preserve them. Keep them. Keep them on track. Don't let them fall, Father. And notice also verse uh, 11, we see that Jesus secondly prayed that they would be unified and operate in harmony. He prays in verse 11, Father, that they may be one even as we are one. Jesus wanted to see the disciples remain unified. They had come, we know, from all different walks of life. They had different personalities and temperaments and they were very different. But the one thing they all had in common was Jesus. They all loved Jesus. They all wanted to be loyal to Jesus and fulfill the purposes of Jesus. But that did not stop them from the potential of nuclear explosion amongst them. And they had disagreements and issues amongst themselves. The scriptures record at times where they would offend one another and they would even at times be jockeying for position and arguing which of us is going to be the greatest and who should have the best position. And and we see among the disciples that there was no absence of offenses and disagreements and misunderstanding. This was a common experience even with the earliest disciples. And and Jesus knew this existed and his desire and request is that they would learn to dwell in unity, work in humble cooperation, each fulfilling their part, respecting their differences and working together in cooperative function that they could, what, emulate the same unity that existed between the Father and the Son. He says that they may be one Father representing how even you and I are one as well. So he prayed for the unity among those disciples serving together. Verse 13, he says, But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have, notice, another thing he asked for, my joy fulfilled in themselves. So Jesus also wanted to see the disciples experience the fullness of joy that can come from a relationship with God and with his son Jesus Christ. He wanted them to be able to enjoy their lives though they were living in a very hard world by finding joy in the Lord and fulfillment in a relationship with him he says I've given them your word and the world notice has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world so notice even as he forewarned them we saw this Back in chapter 15 and 16, Jesus forewarned the disciples, the world is going to hate you because the world hated me and now you're going to represent me. You're going to experience the same animosity in the world. See, even as Jesus was not, as he says here, verse uh, 14, as he was not of the world, 
but lived in connection to the world to come, to a different world. Jesus, therefore, was out of sync with the patterns of this world. The way he lived and how he spoke and the way he operated and the way he thought about and what mattered to him, it was always in conflict to the world system, which is subject to sin and to failures of man and, and an ungodly system, people who reject God. So people, therefore, hated Jesus because he lived out of sync with the world system. And because he lived out of sync with the world system, his life was a contrast and so it brought conviction to people. They felt guilty at times just being around Jesus because he was in love with the Father and he loved righteousness. And he appreciated things that the world didn't want to appreciate and so therefore there was an animosity and a hatred. Well, as Jesus' disciples would now live in the world, he knows that the same is going to be their experience because they're not going to live according to the pattern of the world, but they're going to take the word of Jesus as their guide. And they're going to want to live like Jesus lived and honor the Father as Jesus did. And so Jesus knew that they would experience the same hatred and animosity in the world system that he did. He says, Father, they're not of the world, so the world is going to hate them as well. And look, you look at the gospel accounts, you read the book of Acts, the early church history, no matter how loving, no matter how kind, no matter how servant-hearted and helpful the disciples lived among the world, no matter what good they did and what righteousness and goodness they spread among the culture, the world always had hatred for the followers of Jesus. And the reason why is because the Bible teaches this whole world, the system of it, lies under the sway of the wicked one, of the devil. It's interesting, notice the next thing Jesus prays there for, verse 15, he says, I don't pray that you should take them out of the world. He wasn't looking for them to escape but that you should keep them from the evil one. So Jesus prayed and asked the Father to protect and preserve them, notice, from the assaults and the attacks of the devil. He calls the devil here in verse 15 the evil one, which indicates that the devil wants to do evil things to people in this world. Peter says in 1 Peter 5 that he's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And Jesus tells us that we, as his followers, we're like lambs. Lambs don't do real good against roaring lions. And the Bible says the devil, the evil one, he's like a roaring lion. Jesus, knowing his disciples had to live out their appointed days in this world, they were going to have to try and navigate in such a way that in the midst of that, they didn't get devoured by this ferocious, cruel, brutal, roaring lion, the wicked one, the evil one, the devil, who wants to ruin people's lives. And he's always on the prey, looking to try and harm and hurt the Lord's sheep, knowing this world under the sway and influence of the wicked one, the disciples would always be engaged, whether they wanted to or not, in a spiritual battle. And the devil would always be trying to assault with his evil tactics to ruin lives. So he requests of the Father, Father, protect them, Father. Father, they're vulnerable. They're such easy prey. Don't let the evil ones succeed in their lives. Father, guard them from the devil and his attacks. Keep them. And I think it's beautiful to see how Jesus shows it's important to pray for protection over his followers. Listen. We mean, oh, I mean, the devil's really at work in the world. I'll tell you what he's at work in the world to do. One of the things he's at work in the world to do is not just to ruin people's lives who don't know God. It's to get people who've chosen to follow Jesus Christ to ruin their testimonies, to walk back into lives of sin, to begin to do things that tarnish the reputation of Jesus in the world, and to try and do everything he can because he's lost your soul to ruin your life. Because he's a sore loser. And he wants to devour. And so Jesus understands this. He prays, Father, don't let the devil ruin, destroy, and devour lives of those who are serving me. And I think as we pray, boy, what an important thing to pray for those who are serving Jesus. Oh, Father, please, don't let the devil ruin your servant. Don't let the devil destroy the life, the ministry, the, the influence, the walk. My, Lord, my children are serving you. Protect them, Lord. 
protect them from the devil and his attacks and his influences. And Jesus sets such a beautiful model there. He goes on, verse 16, finishing his prayer for the disciples, saying, Father, they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And as you've sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. So he prays first for protection from the devil's attack against them. And now in verse 16 and 19, we see here Jesus was praying for the disciples to be able to be prepared and to prosper in ministry and service, that they would be effective servants for him as they would now go out and reach the world carrying on the ministry of Jesus. He says here, even as I was not of the world, but you sent me into the world, Father. Notice he says, even so, in similar manner, he says, they are not of this world. However, verse 18, he says, but just as you sent me into the world, now I'm sending them into the world. Now take notice in the prayer of Jesus here. He says, Father, you've given them to me out of the world so that I might work in their lives and then now I'm sending them back into the world. That's the pattern. We're called out of the world system. We come to know Jesus Christ, but then he doesn't want us to isolate or insulate ourselves. He wants to then send us into the world, back into the world, to have an impact for him. But as we go back into the world, preaching the gospel, making disciples, certainly we need the power of the Spirit of the Lord to represent him and serve for him, but we also need to be prepared. How do we get prepared to go back into the world for Jesus to send us into the world to be the most effective? Well, I think verse 17 shows us this is how we become prepared to be sent back into the world. He prays, Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. The word sanctify means to set apart to prepare something for exclusive use. He's referring to how the disciples needed to be set apart to be useful for him as they went back into the world. And what is the best way how that process happens to prepare a disciple of the Lord to have their impurities purged out of their lives to be cleansed. That's what the word sanctify means, to be cleansed or purged, to be prepared for an exclusive use. How does that happen? He says, Father, sanctify them, prepare them by your truth and your word is the truth. In other words, Jesus was praying that his disciples would have a continuous experience with the truth of the word of God going into their life purging impurities out, impurities in their motives so that wrong motives don't hinder them in their ministry, purging out of them things that would be unhealthy and, and would cause them to be unfruitful. And he says, Lord, set them apart, cleanse them. Your word is going to do this because they need to know the truth so they can be a vessel to then convey the truth to the world. So he says it's that truth of the word of God. That is certainly the greatest preparation we can have for ministry. Now, as Jesus comes to verse 20 through the remainder of the chapter, he actually now prays not just for these disciples, but for all who will become disciples, you and I included. He says, I do not pray for these alone, but also notice for those who will believe in me through their word. In other words, Jesus there prays for now all disciples, all followers of Jesus's throughout human history which means guess what here's Jesus praying for you this is Jesus praying for you and I before you were ever born before you ever even chose to become a follower Jesus was already in intercession saying father I'm praying for all those who are going to come to believe in me and let's look what Jesus prays three things specifically we take note of Jesus prayed at least in this prayer for you and I as present followers of Jesus. The first thing he prays for, verse 21 to 23, is for unity among the people of God. He says that they may all be one. He comes back to this theme. As you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me and the glory which you gave me I have given to them that they may be one, just in case we're not picking it up just as we are one, I and them and you and me, 
that they may be made perfect or completed in one and that the world may know that you sent me and have loved them even as you've loved me. So Jesus is praying here that the family of God would remain unified as the church, as God's people. He specifically asks in verse 22 that we may be one just as he and the Father are one. That is the same uh, experience of a shared life cooperatively working together, that experience that was existing between the Father and the Son, that that would be the ideal for you and I as as the family of God now, that we would experience the same, that we would operate in harmony even as Jesus and the Father operated in harmony, working together, that that unification would be experienced. He says that they may be one, he says, verse 21, in us. That's important because Jesus is saying the basis of Christian unity is our relationship with the Father and the Son. See, this is important for us to remember. When we were born spiritually and came into the family of God, at that moment, we were joined to God, but we also were supernaturally joined to one another as the family of God. And so now, as followers of Jesus and as sons and daughters of God, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is something that's just a reality. We've been joined together. Ephesians 4 tells us this, that we're one body, one spirit, called to one hope. We have the same God and Father and the same spirit of his Son dwelling inside of every one of us. And Jesus was praying that we would recognize that unification as his followers, that our lives are joined together. And now that we have to do what is our responsibility to maintain that unity. To maintain that unity. Ephesians 4 says that we should be endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Notice, endeavoring to keep, to maintain what already exists. The unity that we have in the Spirit. We are already unified as one spiritually as Christians, sons and daughters of God. But though we're unified relationally, here's the big shocker. Things are going to disrupt that. Our personalities, our sinfulness, our selfishness, our mistakes, our, things are going to disrupt harmony and unity. It is our responsibility to maintain that unity. That's our responsibility as Christians, to maintain that unity through love and forgiveness and humility and repentance, to seek to resolve things, to restore peace. It's our spiritual responsibility to try and answer Jesus' prayer request. Because Jesus sees and he says, Oh, Father, help them to be one. Help them to maintain the unity that exists among them. To learn to work together cooperatively. Though they may have some minor differences, that they would work together in partnership and minister together. And that unity would have a strong testimony, he says, to the world around them. That the world would see that and realize, Wow, there's something different among those people. There's something very different and and unique among them. Because here's the thing. We live in a world, listen, that is so factious, that is so divided. And the way our world operates and functions, it's, it's so evident. We see it. We were once a part of it. Our world, people have a disagreement or somebody gets hurt. And what do they do? Abandon ship, man. Abandon ship. Cut somebody off. That's it. Forget it. That's human selfish anger. But we, for Jesus' sake, as Christians, have the same issues. We have misunderstandings. We read into petty little things. We get a chip on our shoulder. We, you know, and, and, and the sad thing is, is, as Christians, sometimes, God help us, we behave just like the world does. And the reality is, we're going to have issues and challenges and make mistakes, but to honor Jesus, what he's praying for is that we wouldn't behave the way the world does. We instead would come back and talk it through and pray and genuinely apologize and accept forgiveness and give forgiveness and then actually, look, watch this. Set it aside and move on. And say, we're family. We're family. And that we wouldn't behave in a way where we continue the disunity, but that we would behave, yeah, we had an issue. We had a fight. We're still married. We're going to be married till death do us part, right? That we would understand the unity concept. Yes, oh, yeah, you, you yeah, fall, your brothers, whatever, so punch each other in the face and let's move on, okay? Say you're sorry. It happened. 
We're family. How much more is spiritual family? That this would be what matters to our Lord. And he says the world, if it sees this, it has a powerful influence upon them. It has an effect that it causes them to be appealed to what Jesus has. And he says the world will see that you sent me and that your love is at work among them. It's unique. Jesus prays, verse 24, Father, I desire that they also who you've given me may be with me. And may behold, look at this, my glory which you've given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Now, I'd encourage you someday, take verse 24 and take a walk with that because I want you to see what Jesus is saying. He's saying, Father, I can't wait for those you've given me, my followers, you and I, right here this morning, I can't wait for them to come be here with me. And to be able to see all this glory, this glory that I have, Father, I can't wait. I want them to be here with me can't wait till they see this i want to say this morning jesus is more excited than you are for you to arrive into heaven you know sometimes as a christian you find yourself longing to be with jesus and longing to just be in glory here's the reality according to jesus's words here he's more interested in that day than you are he's more excited about that day than your father i can't wait Till they get here. Oh, righteous Father, he concludes, the world has not known you, but I've known you and these have known you sent me. And I've declared to them your name and will declare, notice, that you, the love which you have loved me with may be in them and I in them. Do you see the final thing Jesus prays for you and I as he's closing this prayer for us followers in this day? He wants us to be filled with what? The love of God. He says at the end of verse 30, 26 there, Father, he says that the love which you have loved me with, that that same love may be in them. Jesus' desire, his prayer request, is that as his representatives in this world, that we would be filled with the love of God, exercising his love, revealing God's love to a dying and a hurting world, letting the love of God be the thing that motivates us above everything else and the way we interact with one another as his people, and that we would show the world God by the power of love. By the power of love, may we remember what matters to Jesus in this prayer and what Jesus desires so that we can pray for the same things in accordance with his prayer and that we can pursue those things in our lives. Let's pray together.